Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday, January 20. I'm Tom Tilley. And something I didn't find out until yesterday was that, Annika Smethurst, you were a ball girl at the Australian Open. (laughs) I had a very short-lived career as a ball girl, and it was back in the day when you actually got paid. They don't pay them anymore. I wouldn't have done lock-up for it, though, Tom. I don't (laughs) think I was that keen. How about you? You're a pretty keen tennis player. Would you want to spend two weeks in lock-up for the chance to win an Australian Open? Oh, if I got a chance to get out and train for five hours, like most of them are, but probably not if I was locked up for the whole two weeks. It's been interesting to watch it unfold, hasn't it? Yeah, especially someone that's just come to Victoria. I was at the supermarket. I overheard a lot of people talking about this yesterday, and you know an issue is breaking through when you just pick up on people talking about it in the aisles at Coles, which is what happened yesterday. So, look, it's a big story down here as a number of tennis players are pretty unhappy with the fact they have to be locked up for the two weeks prior to the tournament. So what was the vibe in the supermarket? Were people feeling like it was worth taking on the risk of hosting this event in Melbourne or not? Look, I must admit, I've just moved back to Victoria, so I didn't go through that intense lockdown for as long as everybody did here. But there seems to be real anger. These are people that missed out on family events, couldn't go to funerals, couldn't go to weddings, couldn't even go out of you know the house to go to work. And They see that as something they've built and something that needs to be protected and they're not that interested in some tennis players complaining about it, to be honest. Yeah, all right. Well, we're going to brief you on the Australian Open controversy. Would we have lost it if it didn't go ahead this year? And is it worth the risk to the Melbourne community? When you look at risk on planes, it's not quite as you think it is. It's not like being in a small room for 16 hours. That interview in just a moment. Uh, First, our headlines actually start with the latest news from the Australian Open COVID controversy. Yes, the boss of the Australian Open has defended the players. He says most of them don't have a problem with hotel quarantine. Unfortunately, the the, the minority uh, and the comments of a few have coloured the attitude of the rest and uh, and the playing group uh, in many cases have been upset by it because they feel that that hasn't been representative of their understanding of what it was coming in. Yeah, and one player not in that minority that are complaining is the former two-time Australian Open champion, Victoria Azarenka. She sent out a tweet asking her colleagues for cooperation, understanding and empathy for the local community that's been going through a lot of very demanding restrictions that they did not choose. Yesterday, a further two players and one non-player linked to the tournament were added to the COVID tally, bringing the total to seven cases from those three charter planes. However, two previous cases have actually been reclassified as viral shedding, which means they had traces of the virus in their system but couldn't spread it to anyone else. There are 72 players in that hard lockdown where they're not allowed out to train and organisers are considering delaying lead-in events so they get a chance to train before competing. Yeah, more on the tennis and its risk to the community in our briefing topic in just a moment. A senior figure in the Republican Party has condemned Donald Trump on his final day in office. Today, the Senate's gathered to officially confirm that Joe Biden won the election just in time for the inauguration. Um, It was delayed by the Capitol Hill insurrection that killed five people two weeks ago. A short time ago, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's been a longtime supporter of the president, blamed him for the attack. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. And they tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding of the first branch of the federal government, which they did not like. Now Trump is preparing for a pretty graceless exit. He and the First Lady, Melania Trump, will snub a series of long-held traditions to hand power to the next president, including boycotting Joe Biden's inauguration. 
Now, that hasn't happened for 150 years. International affairs expert Keith Souter says that's not the only reason tomorrow's inauguration will look different. In the past, they've been worried about security threats from overseas, from terrorist attacks, or during World War II, 1944, there was fear about the Germans might do a sneak attack or the Japanese. This time, the fear is from fellow Americans. In the meantime, two members of the US Army's National Guard have been pulled from tomorrow's inauguration because they have ties with fringe right-wing militia groups. And India's pulled off one of the biggest run chases in history to defeat Australia in the fourth test and claim the series 2-1. Gets it through. India win the most incredible test match and the most amazing series. It's our first defeat at the Gabba in three decades. The visitors managed to chase down 328 in the final innings to claim the Border Gavaskar Trophy. Yeah, and Aussie skipper Tim Payne admits we were completely outplayed. What's done is done. We'll, we'll go through it, no doubt, as a group. But, um, you know, we've got to look forward now. We've got a big series coming up in South Africa. Um, as I said, we've been outplayed by a better side in this series. But, um, yeah, there's going to be some areas that we need to improve. There's no doubt about that. The player of the match was Rishabh Pant, the Indian wicketkeeper, who hit a crucial 89 in the match-winning run chase. It's been a dream series, I can say that, that after not playing the first test match, I've been practising hard and everything pays off because we won the series. Yeah, it was an amazing moment in sport. I was actually in an Uber listening to it on the radio yesterday and it just felt one of those big historical sporting moments. They were given almost zero chance to chase down that massive target and then slowly and slowly as the day wore on yesterday, it looked more and more realistic until they chased it down in that final session. It was just incredible. Yeah, I was sitting at home trying to do some work and I kept getting distracted seeing it on social media. So I just had to turn it on and watch the final innings. It feels like those moments are almost more special in a, in a weird <laughs> pandemic year, doesn't it? It does. I think everyone needs them. And it was so good to see the Indian fans really happy and out and about yesterday too. Yeah, and they got through all the weird sort of quarantine and different sort of COVID restrictions to actually get on the field. There was a moment where the Indians didn't even want to play at the Gabba, uh, but they got there. I guess they're glad they did now. All right, in a moment, another very interesting sporting event during the pandemic, uh, the Australian Open. AO 2021, no place for impossible. The Australian Open is turning into a massive headache. On one hand, you've got players who can't train in hard hotel quarantine. Yeah, and on the other hand, you've got the residents of Melbourne, of which you're one, Annika, (laughs) desperate not to end up in another lockdown. World number one Novak Djokovic issued a list of demands. The answer is no. These people aren't so special that they're not going to get COVID-19. They're not so special that they can't spread COVID-19. So they shouldn't be so special to be able to not abide. Ah! So as you can hear there, the stakes are pretty high. And in this briefing, you're going to find out what is the risk of the Australian Open causing community outbreak in Victoria? And has it all been worth it? We'll ask a Melbourne-based immunologist that question in a moment. First, let's go to veteran tennis reporter Craig Gabrielle to find out more about what the players are thinking. Craig, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. One of the main reasons put forward by Dan Andrews, the Premier, for going ahead was the the threat that we'd lose the Australian Open if we didn't run the event this year. How real was that risk? 
Tom, I don't think that was really real. It was a point that he was making that this was important for Australia, important for Victoria and Melbourne to have the Australian Open. Many, many, many years ago, when the Australian Open was a very poor cousin to the rest of the, the majors, um, there was the risk of the uh, of it being lost to, to another country. But that is not going to be the case. Uh, the Australian Open is owned by Tennis Australia. So it would take a, a mammoth amount of money, which uh, I can't see being accepted. And if it was to be broached, I'd say there'd be a revolt from uh, the entire tennis community because of the traditions and history of it being here. Now we've got a lot of players locked up in quarantine and that's something Australians have just got used to, but it's probably unusual for a lot of people around the world. Now, having said that, Australians don't have a lot of sympathy for some of the players complaining and some of the demands they're making. Can you tell us more about, I guess, some of the gripes they have and whether it's going to, you know, impact the tennis we see or whether they want to come back. They'll come back. This is a major. This is one of the four crown jewels of the sport. So they're going to keep on coming back. Uh, I think a lot of it is idle threats. They, they've come off long, long flights. They're feeling tired. They're exasperated. There have been positive tests on some of these charter flights. Uh, uh, some saying they weren't aware that uh, if there was a positive test that they would be in lockdown the way they are. Well, let me tell you, the players were all informed about this. Some choose not to remember. Some chose not to read the the directives that were given to them. So I think things are starting to calm down. There's no no doubt about that. And I think once the action gets going and the tournaments leading into the Australian Open and then the Australian Open happen, all this will be in the past. And what is the, the context for these players? Like we're seeing them arrive now here in Australia in the COVID reality we're living with. But what's the last year been like for them? Have they been able to play? Have they been able to make money? Where are they coming from? Uh, It's been a shocking situation. I mean, I travel on the tennis tour all year. I haven't left the country. Um, and and that's I found it exasperating. I suffered depression in April last year when Wimbledon announced that it was being cancelled. But six months of last year, there was not a single tournament in sight. From about August, things started to move a bit. You had the US Open, the fre- delayed French Open was played, and a couple of other tournaments in between. But they were playing in front of empty stadiums as well, and they were in bubbles. So what's also happening over here is not unique. It's not something they've they've not experienced before. For them to be out here now, they're getting excited. They want to be able to practice. They want to be able to play. So I guess they're just chomping at the bit to get out there. But they were earning no money. And uh, it was a very tough situation for them as well. As high as a lot of them are paid with guarantees and, and endorsements and things like that. But their core business is on court, producing the goods, producing amazing and exciting tennis. And they weren't able to do that. I have tickets to the Australian Open. I'm pretty excited. But With all this changed lead up, uh, change to how much they can practice, what they're eating, just being confined in a space, what sort of tennis do you expect us to see? Is it going to be of the same calibre we'd usually see? I really believe that we will. I mean, these are professional athletes. They they want to perform at the best of their abilities. I mean, there's there's massive carrots uh, hanging in front of them. There's, the stakes of winning an, an Australian Open and, and, and going into the history books is, is massive for all of these players. They're going to give it everything. The discussion about uh, going from quarantine to be, for the men anyway, playing best of five sets at the Australian Open, it's not as if they're going straight from their room onto the court. 
there's still about seven or eight days between the end of this hard quarantine for some of the players, or 72 players, and the start of the Australian Open. So there is still t- uh, preparation time. And let's, let's not forget, in the off-season, which was November, December, for most of them, they've been working out, they've been training, they've been tweaking their games. So it's not as if they're coming in completely cold and going into a major. We're pretty proud of the Australian Open here. And often some of the tennis players actually say it's the fun tournament. It's the happy tournament. This is the words they use to describe it. They love coming down here. You don't think this will have any long-lasting effect on it being moved. But how about the attitude towards Australia and the Australian Open? Do you think, you know, there's still going to be the same goodwill? I believe so. It was Roger Federer who, who coined the term the happy slam for the Australian Open uh, many, many years ago. Look, once this is all done, once they get on court and start playing matches, and remember for the Australian Open, Craig Tidy, the tournament director, has increased prize money from the early round. So you lose the first, if you lose the first round of the Australian Open, you're still walking away um, with a check for a oh, well, prize money of $100,000. I could so, lose first round uh, and, for that. <laughs> and the players are appreciative of that. Let me tell you, I can assure you of that. But once things are underway and the Australian Open is done, players also have short memories. They'll, they'll be keen to get on to the next run of, of tournaments and uh, and they will come back next year and uh, look forward to it. That was Craig Gabriel, uh, the tennis commentator. Annika, interesting to hear that he didn't think postponing or cancelling the event would have been a big risk to its long-term future. Look, I guess he's not Premier of Victoria. You wouldn't be pretty popular if you were... I guess, in charge when Australia did lose it. It's a really big deal here. I've been to a lot of Australian Opens almost every year for about 20 years now. And you could just imagine the sort of blowback they'd get if they lost it. But what I don't understand, Tom, is why they couldn't have just postponed it for a few more months. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, the future of the event was on the line, according to Dan Andrews, and that's what they're trading off uh, with the risk of a community outbreak here. So let's find out more about those risks with Professor Catherine Bennett. She's Deakin University's Chair of Epidemiology. Catherine Bennett, thank you so much for joining us. Given what we know now, do you think the Australian Open's worth the risk? This event was designed to have a very large safety margin and it was also designed knowing people would be positive coming off planes, even that screening beforehand doesn't um, protect you from that. They also have to assume, I mean, everyone is still in quarantine, even if they are allowed to train, that you might have positive players. But again, the way that those training sessions are planned keeps those those teams, those entourage together so that it won't impact others should we find more positive people. So if they're managing at that level, it shouldn't be a risk to the wider population. Of course, other people at the training sites and behind the scenes at the Australian Open um, also need to be managed very carefully. But the chances of us missing a positive case are low and hopefully we're, we're, we've seen the last of the cases on the ground. But of course, if we find someone positive, I'm hoping they're testing every day because you need to catch them when they're infectious, not just wait for symptoms. You said a lot of planning's gone into this, but a lot of that would have been done before this new, more contagious strain of coronavirus started spreading around the world. It's in a lot of countries now, especially those countries where many of these players and officials are coming from. So should have that been a game changer and how much does that factor into, I guess, the way we're dealing with this? Yeah, look, it's a concern when you have something that's more infectious. But what happens is it doesn't mean it spreads further or it's harder to contain. It means that the 
the same number of people are probably exposed that would have been exposed before, just more of them become cases. And and I say just <laughs> because it's it's not, as I said, it doesn't change your infection control procedures, but it does mean there's a there's a slightly higher risk. In the UK, when they've looked at that, um, so the close contacts of someone who's a case, on average, 11% of close contacts become positive. So they're people usually in the same household. With the new variant, it's 14.7%. So when you're talking about smaller numbers, like we're managing here, it sounds like a lot, 1,200 people, but in fact, it's still manageable um, for the proportion that will be cases. You're talking about, you know, if someone has 10 close contacts, like we saw in that cleaner in Queensland recently, one person becomes infected on average. With a new variant, it's one or two. So it doesn't make a massive difference at this scale. Of course, it does if it gets into the community. So that's why these large safety margins, I think, were built in and um, and continue to be really important. So not backing off any of that planning is really critical at this stage. So Catherine Bennett, you, you work at Deakin University. Does that mean you're a Melbourne resident who went through the lockdown? Oh, yes. Right. Twice. So you felt the pain, <laughs> you felt the pain right? Yep. So do you feel uncomfortable with this situation? Because a lot of Melbournians seem to be. Our government, we know, is very conservative. I mean, that's part of the reason we stayed in lockdown for as long as we did in Victoria, was to really use that to its full advantage to make sure we were absolutely beyond community transmission by the time we opened up. So that's the pain we talk about and what we need to protect now. But it's also the, the attitude that's prevailed right throughout. Okay. So, so one of the tension points is these people in hard quarantine that that can't train. Now, is the training such a weak spot that, you know, that's the right way forward? I mean, you said before that there's a lot of measures in place so that the people that that can train are still being treated as though they they might actually have COVID. So why can't the other people train and and why couldn't they be put in a situation more like the AFL players bubble where they're they're separated in a resort um, away from the community where they can um, I guess, enforce a lot of these measures, but also be out training? Look, I think they're very good questions. And um, when you look at risk on planes, it's not quite as you think it is. It's not like being in a small room for 16 hours. There's a lot that we've learned from ventilation and so on that comes off airplanes. And the fact that, you know, they're particularly domestic flights, quite low risk if you're away from, from a case. And we've got good data from our international data to know you know, who is really at risk on a plane. But this is what I'm talking about in terms of safety margins. This is putting a much wider margin on, calling everyone on the plane a close contact. Some players also wanted to stay in private homes with tennis courts. I guess I wanted to know, would have that been more difficult? You know, is it easier to manage them when we're all in one place? Because we've seen a lot of the transport workers who move, say, flight crews around or drive the buses to go to these COVID hotels get sick. So is it really important that they are all in the one place? It certainly cuts down the logistics in trying to manage it. And and frustratingly, we have seen some... Um, uh, not not true breaches, but attempted breaches or testing the system, if you like, in those early days. And imagine that if that was spread across, you know, large individual households across Melbourne and Adelaide um, as people relaxed into a into a home with a tennis court. It would be a logistic nightmare to manage, and it would actually be a, a massive drain on resources. We've done it for diplomats and movie stars, though. Why not tennis players? Well, there's always something about consistency, isn't there? And I think that's always the challenge where, you know, you've got to have the same rule applying for everyone. And that's true within the tennis cohort as well. That was Professor Catherine Bennett from Deakin University. She's an epidemiologist. 
And an interesting point there that this week, as the players are arriving, was always going to be the hardest week and the most challenging, the biggest headache for organisers. They potentially had to do what they've done, which is put these players into hard hotel quarantine. And I imagine once they get through that and, you know, all these arrivals will happen now, things might start to smooth out. Yeah, you'd like to think that once they can all get on the court and start enjoying the best Melbourne has to offer and our city's on display again, you know, this will be forgotten. And as you say, the bad news will be in the past. Look, I also think after a really tough year for Australians, everyone around the world, but really for Melburnians, that maybe just having an event like this actually has a really positive mental health effect too. And we, we focus so much on, I guess, physical health during COVID and that's really important. But I think, you know, this is a really important event to a lot of people and to this city. Uh, and it'll be interesting to sort of, I guess, weigh that balance up in the mix when we look at the positives and negatives of this. Yeah, it's an amazing event city. It's known for this kind of stuff and all going to plan. It could really sort of help restore the pride of Melbourne. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a number of COVID vaccines are being rolled out around the world. We're actually going to speak to someone who's had it in America. We're going to find out how he got to the top of the list. We'll also find out what we can learn from the experiences of other countries. A Podcast One production.